Blog Talk Radio. This is going to be another informative installment in a series of podcasts where we try and highlight the plethora of positive uses of unmanned technologies. And that encompasses the whole world. We're out there scouring the world looking for stories. I'm your host, Patrick Egan, and uh, we have our uh, consummate co-host online today, Comms Check Gene. Hey, Patrick. We're five by five on this end, so let's get to it. All right. <clears throat> Today's uh, podcast title, we're get, we have our special guest is uh, Steve Morris with uh, MLB Company, and we're going to talk to him about some of his uh, concepts about this uh, the, the test center idea. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about some uh, current news stories. Uh, SUS News Today, we uh, we the editorial staff, Gary and myself, came up with uh, some endorsements for the AUVS, uh, AUVSI board of directors. There are a lot of good people on there. I know a lot of people on there. The uncontested slates, we kind of let that go. Uh, I think they're they're kind of self-explanatory, and I'd like to have endorsed kind of everybody, but I, I tried to keep the, the scope small, and so I would uh, suggest that you go out there or go to the webpage and check that out. Also, um, you know, last week we, we scooped the the new the, the Global Hawk morphed into the Triton for for Navy bands. We scooped that one. That was a good show uh, last week. What do you think, Gene? Oh, it was probably one of the better ones uh, from the legal standpoint and from the inside standpoint. I think there was a lot of information there, and I uh, hope everyone found it as informative as I did because it raised my eyebrows a couple of times. I I I would uh, concur with that notion. Uh, I definitely uh, thought we there was a lot of a lot of uh, gold in that one. Um, again, uh, that's that's what we're trying to bring uh, the community with this series of podcasts. I, I definitely when I try and bring the guests on here and the people that I'm talking to, I want to uh, bring forth some some unvarnished concepts, candid conversations. Uh, get the newsmakers to, uh, you know, let us know how they feel uh, about the things that they're um, into. And, uh, you know, that's the whole premise here. And uh, I, I thought that one was a good one. Now, and I, I'm going to go back and and uh, I did want to talk about the NIST thing one more time, Steve. And uh, I want to talk about that because I did ask uh, Gene how it went. And Gene told me everything was great, which I knew it would. Be, but I'd like to get uh, your perspective. So, Steve, maybe you could give us a little perspective on NIST. Uh, okay, I don't know how much you guys discussed in the previous show, but uh, NIST uh, is a government organization that purchased uh, five of our aircraft, and Gene is operating them for NIST. They're using them to study how wildfires uh, burn and develop, uh, primarily so that they can use this information to design better buildings because quite often uh, housing developments and structures are impinged on by fires that come from uh, forests or, uh, you know, there's basically a fire out in the wild and then it comes into a community and it starts burning things up. So they want to figure out how to better build uh, buildings so that they can resist these fires and 
be more immune to it. So the goal is with, to use these aircraft is to just uh, use them to study a very controlled burn and get data that will then calibrate numerical models that can then be used to model all kinds of fires digitally. So uh, that's what these things are being used for, and the aircraft are carrying um, CloudCap TAZE gimbal systems, the EOIR gimbals, and they're being used to you know, measure the temperature at various parts of the fire and then temperature and humidity and wind in the air above the fire. Um, and at this point, uh, Gene and the NIST customers have been trained on how to operate the aircraft. All the hardware is working, and we've done uh, probably – about well, 10 flight hours with many sorties, just keeping the airplanes in close range and just uh, looking at hot spots on the ground, controlled hot spots, and in one case we looked at a controlled burn. So uh, I think everything's going fine also. Well, you know, as I told uh, Gene last week, you know, I had no doubts in my mind that it was going to be a success, knowing who's involved. Um, you know, for for the benefit of the uh, listening community, uh, you know, I we we go back a little ways, Steve. Um, I think the first time I met you was what back in two thousand and eight or maybe seven uh, at the Silicon Valley Chapter Symposium uh, that was at uh, NASA Ames. Yeah, but I think we probably communicated through like the RC Group's UAV forum also. But uh, I can't remember exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been a little while. So you know, I you know most of these people uh, I do know that we bring on here, and, and so just give the the audience a little background. But what I would like you to do, uh, Steve, if possible, is maybe you could um, kind of talk about yourself a little bit, uh, explain uh, who you are, your background, and how you uh, got into this uh, unmanned aircraft systems thing for the audience. Sure. Um, so. Uh, like many people who build uh, unmanned aircraft, I have a background in model airplanes. Uh, I'm one of those guys who built model airplanes from the, my various youngest age, uh, probably age four or five I was building. You know, back in the 60s when I was born, you were allowed to have glue and razor blades when you were a kid. So uh, I, I was building model airplanes back then and desperately wanting to get a radio-controlled airplane, which in those days cost hundreds of dollars for the simplest RC system, and it didn't do much very well. And So I had to wait many years until I could get a radio-controlled airplane. Uh, but it, it, all my interest in this stems very strongly from uh, my playing around with model airplanes and things that fly. So uh, all of my education has been in engineering geared towards aerospace and aeronautical engineering. And throughout my uh, undergraduate and graduate education, I often use model airplanes to do experiments and to supplement my research. When I was a graduate student at Stanford in the 80s, um, I started MLB because we were, uh, back then I was one of the first people to put a microcomputer in a small airplane for stability and control research purposes. So in 1987, a friend of mine and I built an, a highly unstable tailless aircraft that used a microcomputer, and we successfully achieved stable flight with an airplane that was extremely unstable and had and had no tail surface, just trailing edge flaps. And some people in the defense industry caught wind of that and asked to purchase the flight computer that we had built, and that's how I started MLB, was selling uh, flight computers to people building unusual test beds for primarily stability and control work. Now, in the late 90s, we started to have uh, a proliferation of small GPS units, uh, small CCD cameras, 
and it occurred to me in that, at that time that, that it was very ripe to build a small, fully autonomous, unmanned aircraft. And so in 97, I started working on our first product, which was a, like a one-and-a-half-meter wingspan airplane that would fly fully autonomous and deliver geo-referenced imagery. And we started selling that in uh, 1999. We started selling the first of the BAT series of airplanes. And um, I just need to make it clear that MLB and BAT, we have nothing to do with baseball. <laughs> the, the company is called MLB because the three of us that started it, uh, that's our initials, Morris, Larkin, and Bradley. And at the time we started it, there was no Internet, and we didn't think about what a stupid idea it would be to choose that as a name from a you know, website standpoint. Um, and similarly, the bat aircraft, uh, the very first ones were little tailless flying wings, and they kind of looked bat-like to me. So I just started calling everything bat. So that's where all that comes from. Um, since, the early, since the late 90s, the products have morphed into more capable airplanes. Uh, our super bat aircraft can fly for 10 hours and carries a cloud cap autopilot and gimbal system and has its own launcher. And, and uh, we're also working on a vertical takeoff and landing design, the VBAT, which the purpose of that airplane is to have long endurance, you know, in the five to ten hour range, and also eliminate the need for all of the launch and landing infrastructure. So the VBAT, because it's a tail sitter, it's a vertical takeoff airplane, you don't need a catapult or a runway. You can literally launch and recover it from the, uh, an area the size of a parking space for a small car. And we think that's going to be revolutionary to how people operate these uh, uh, small UAV systems. Um, so anyway, uh, right now MLB is, uh, we're still a small company of you know, less than 10 people, and we're located in Santa Clara, California. We manufacture airframes, we design airplanes, and we make autopilots and gimbals, but primarily our products are using uh, cloud cap systems right now. Well, that, you know, that. That that was pretty uh, pretty good, you know. I, I, another thing is, it's kind of uh, you're one of the old timers or the old guard, as I like to put it. And it's funny, you know. I talk to people, and they're like, "Hey, when do you think this is gonna happen?" And you know, how far out in the future is that gonna happen? And and in your bio that you just laid out, you know, I've talked to people, and some of the stuff that you've talked about. Well, gee whiz, you know, when's that gonna happen? Well, you know, guys like you already did it. And uh, it's kind of funny, you know, we're we're having like this, uh, I guess, kind of, uh, um, you know, people are kind of awakening to this technology in the in the regular media. And that, I find that kind of funny. Um, one other thing I want you to do, because you talked about a lot of systems and, you know, again, this is kind of a radio thing. That's kind of a little bit of a, you know, a theater of the mind thing. So could you please uh, give the audience your website uh, address, please? Oh, yeah, it's uh, uh, www spyplanes.com so that's S-P-Y-P-L-A-N-E-S.com uh, we chose that name you know back in the 90s when it just sounded like a fun name I guess I some know. people think it has a more uh, nasty connotation but we don't spy on anyone the, the purpose of my company is uh, airborne access to information and I see unmanned aircraft is a very valuable tool for getting your eyeballs into the sky so that you can see things that you would not have otherwise seen. And when I when I say you, I mean everyone from people trying to save lives to people trying to conduct their business to people who want to just know how to plan their day because they don't know how the traffic is on the highway. So uh, right. it's, it's been over 100 years since the Wright brothers first flew, and it's still very difficult to see what's going on around you from an airborne perspective. And I think that the 
products my company develops are going to enable that. Yeah, and you know it's kind of it's funny that you mentioned that too. It just even the uh, the website domain, you know, it's when I was uh, doing uh, aerial photography, let's say professionally, um, I I started calling it UAV photography, and I think you've seen the Cracker Barrel system, and I, I was kind of tongue in cheek, you know, when the FAA was like, "Oh, you guys are flying UAVs," and I'm over here, you know, laughing at the deal, and it was kind of a tongue in cheek when I came up with you know Skyborg unmanned aerial. <laughs> vehicle photography and it was a $29 airframe but you know you gotta you gotta you know recognize comedy when you see it yeah. so I, I can uh, sympathize with the website um all right well you know uh, all very interesting stuff um you know I, I i've seen your aircraft over the years and i've i've thought the same thing i thought it was pretty interesting um, I, I like the the V bat. It's a cool thing. You, you got to get out there on the website and check it out. The other thing is today's the photograph um, for today's episode is when we did the uh, the fly in for the FAA small UAS arc, and uh, that's you and your guys out there on the lake bed at Edwards, mm-hmm. which uh, was a good time for one and all. Did you have a good time out there that day? You well, remember that day? Yeah, except for the heat. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> It's always oh, tough. Come on. It wasn't any hotter than Texas, was it? Uh, but, you know, it's drier. <laughs> it is drier, but, you know, people used to laugh at Edwards, and uh, I've got buddies over at NASA, and they're like, anytime anybody's going out to Edwards in the summer, <laughs> the advice is bring a hat, you know. Uh, but after being in Yumastan uh, for a summer, Edwards and Palmdale, man, that's like a Shangri-La out there, at least civilizations within an hour's drive. <laughs> yeah, Arizona is definitely uh, the, the the hot spot here. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's pretty interesting. Uh, we had a good time with that. Um, okay, well, I want to jump right into, uh, you know, I was telling people that we had that meeting, the AUVSI Silicon Valley chapter meeting, which the next one, and I hope you're there, Steve, we're going to do the uh, blimp hangar tour, and we're going to tour the Zeppelin NT out there as guests of Airship Ventures, and that ought to be fun. Um, all right, well, I, I count on it. And But, the la- you know, we'd sidebarred uh, after that meeting, and I was asking about the test centers. And, uh, you know, I've been going round and round with this test center, and I had actually discussed some other efforts with people this morning about it. Um, and people are all over the map with this, and then they're like, yeah, we're getting all this small business involved in this, you know. And I'm like, hmm, really? Well, who? You know who's small? Who who? You know I I like to try and package that and and find out what people are thinking by small. So I've been involved in the Arizona effort to get the test center going. I'd, I'd been kind of talking to the people in Texas and whatnot. But what I want from you is the small guy's perspective to um, what it would take if just say you know we're going to have they're going to open this test center and what would it take for you and your company to move to you know uh, Moose Hat Wisconsin or whatever maybe you can you could fill us in on what you would need as a small business guy it has to be the ultimate inconvenience so Right now, the attitude with test centers is uh, they sort of know that the customers out there uh, are big aerospace defense contractors that have a lot of money, and 
a lot of the test center pe- people who are scrambling for test center uh, status are seeing it as a way to bring in more government money. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the way the government money flows these days is it you know gets handed down to special interest groups, large organizations. Uh, it, it is the government doesn't have a definitive program uh, like in the 50s and 60s when they wanted to uh, encourage education uh, in aerospace amongst you know school, school and college students. Um, where they were pouring money into everything to foster an, an aerospace industry. We don't have something like that now. Right now, it's all trickle down. It starts, money flows to the, the biggest entities, and hopefully it will end up maybe uh, through a donation making it into a university or employing more engineers. The problem with that is is that when state governments want these centers of excellence, they want to get some of that money, and it can only now come from a Northrop Grumman or a Lockheed. It can't uh, easily come directly from the federal government. And because of that, a small business guy like me inadvertently gets categorized as potentially a Lockheed or a Northrop Grumman or a Boeing, and they think, okay, we're going to charge everybody a lot of money to use this test center, and that's how uh, the state will be happy, and the money, of course, will ultimately come from the taxpayers and the government. Uh, but small business guys like me don't have that kind of money. And so for the ultimate inconvenience, I need a test center that is funded or set up in such a way so that it's funded by the government, and I, as a small business guy, get invited to use it to foster the growth of small business and this industry in this country. Um, and that's, a, that's kind of an attitude shift. Right now we don't have anything from the, that I've seen from the national government level that wants to grow small UAV commercial companies. It's, it's a neglected area, but it's, it's such an important area for the future of our country and for this industry. Right now, it's all defense-centric, and uh, a lot of that is, as you've been alluding to, is how the media has been handling it and how our national organizations have failed to uh, manipulate the media to change that impression. Because, you know, to be honest, uh, the money has been flowing for the last decade all through de- the defense sector and everyone just ignores the potential of the commercial sector. Well, when I got into this, it was nothing but commercial. We targeted specifically the model airplane-sized UAV because model airplanes were operating essentially unregulated, and that opened up a huge commercial opportunity uh, that could, in terms of economic power, dwarf the whole defense operation and employ many more people and have a much greater impact on society, certainly a much more positive impact. Uh, the government institutions haven't embraced this yet. They're, they're still a lot of fear, fear for things that have not been uh, properly categorized in terms of their risk from a, you know, from an analytic level. We just, you know, we're just acting as though any bad thing that might happen with an unmanned aircraft is entirely unacceptable, and we haven't put any rational risk assessment on it. So because of all this, we have a. a, a a dwindling commercial sector here, whereas in other countries that have slightly more liberal regulation or in some cases no regulation at all of UAS, uh, they're growing like gangbusters in the commercial area. And and furthermore, we're cut off from selling to those countries because of our export uh, regulations, which treat all UAVs as missile technology. So Mm -hmm. in the United States, we're we're fairly backwards thinking at the moment. it reminds me a lot of, of what happened after the Wright brothers invented the airplane. Uh, it, it, slightly different 
parallel but similar in that the Wright brothers, you know, got into a big patent war with Curtis and the government, you know, the, the whole bureaucracy of all of that stifled the innovation and growth of the aircraft industry until after World War One, when we realized that everybody in Europe now had better airplanes because they had just gotten on with things and started making them. Uh, we're going to find that out in the commercial sector. We're going to, it's going to be a sad day when we're actually importing all of our UAVs from other countries. And yes. even in the military world, we still kind of do that. We still buy a lot of Israeli aircraft. Right. Um, we need a healthier UAV industry in the U.S. It's a big job growth area. It fits in with education perfectly. It's a perfect STEM, you know, science, tech, technology, engineering, math activity. It is a, a perfect outlet for people who have an interest in computers and in mechanical robotic systems because um, flying robots are some of the coolest thing around. But yet all the talk you hear is out of fear because, admittedly, many of these airplanes that are in use right now carry missiles, and that's how people think of them. They don't think of them as being uh, yet another way to see what's going on around us and to help people, uh, you know, another eyeball that does useful things for you. So right, they're, right. They're, that's the beginning of my rant on that. <laughs> well, we're going to – and I want to give you more time because, you know, uh, you are – I know you're – this choir over here, you know, you probably not didn't hear it, you know, but the frustration, I had to turn the mic off and scream because, uh, uh, you know, everything that you're talking about resonates with me. I mean uh, – you know the stem thing the uh you know i the cots uh technology you know people buying stuff from ever overseas i you know i i have a little joke that i like chinese food and i want to eat their lunch before they eat our lunch you know <laughs> um and and the other thing is is i know that uh gene's probably over there biting his lips so i'm going to let uh, gene uh add some comments to what you had to say gene do do you have anything to say on this subject I was doing exactly what you were doing, Patrick. Steve and I have talked about this at great length, and you're right. The the double standards and the favoritisms and the privilege is becoming very apparent. And uh, it is extremely difficult for a small manufacturer of UA to, to go out, especially with ITAR uh, regulations in place, where you can't take your material outside the United States and actually utilize it. It is it, so restrictive, and it... And, we even tried to approach the ombudsman, if you'll recall, Patrick, and, and mm -hmm. we felt like there was an obstruction of commerce there. And we couldn't even get past that stage to, to try to demonstrate how restrictive it was and how they really were strangling an industry that, as they have stated, as the NGO or the, uh, the accounting office has said, is going to be a $27 billion a year industry. Yeah, it's just none of it's here. I, Unfortunately, none of it is here. It's all going to be in China and uh, the the back rim. Right. Well, I mean, you know, and, and I laugh at it because it's kind of ironic. Uh, but you know, um, it is very frustrating. Um, you know, I'm a really a small business guy, and uh, I want to this 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 technology. Uh, I keep telling people, you know, I I can without uh, you know stretching it too far, can employ this technology and turn it into a professional six-figure a year salary, hire people. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. But there are a lot of things standing in the way of this, you know, and uh, one of them is regulation. And you know, I'm writing a position paper for the SUAS News uh, about this privacy issue. 
And 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 really, I came to the determination this morning that it's it's almost impossible for us as a community to defend ourselves with this privacy thing. If you look at you know, and I'm and I only want to get into the 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 extrajudicial killings or you know the Air Force leaving their sensors on or people using predators in the United States. I, besides all that. Without definitive regulatory guidelines from the FAA, you have the public out there thinking there'll be swarms of drones. You know, there's going to be one in every one of your windows eyeballing you. And how do we, you know, and I go out and I say, you know, the regulation is going to be pretty restrictive and you're not going to be able to, you know, do this and that. And nobody has any idea. But I can't, I don't even have a document I can point to that says, well, we're going to be able to operate here and do this and do that. So, you know, don't, 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 uh, don't freak out too much, you know. Um, that's one thing. The other thing with the, the military stuff, uh, I think as a community, you know, it's time that we just we really need to get back to, hey, we're your friends and neighbors. Uh, we're small business guys like uh, Steve and Eugene. And, uh, you know, we're out there and we employ, you know, your sons and daughters, your uh, brother, uncle, whatever. These these they're just normal everyday people. And we're out here trying to do these normal everyday jobs. Would you guys agree a, with that? Yeah, and uh, but I have a thought of you know I'm, every time I hear about all the problems, I inevitably try to think of at least one solution. Maybe it's not a great one or not. Maybe it is. Uh, but you know, it, let's just imagine that somehow we could have a, a new self-regulating uh, agency form that would try to represent the commercial interests. And, and I'll be selfish here, and I'll just say of small UAVs because mm-hmm. one of the problems here is we can't cover everybody when we talk about UAVs. They come in too many different sizes. We, it, just like the model airplane people have been, a, they've been able to carve out a chunk of activity that they self-regulate, we have to carve out some chunk for ourselves. And if we had such an agency, and that agency had bylaws or, or, or rules that said, we are not interested in invasive uh, surveillance and intrusion of the private public. We will not carry uh, weapons on our aircraft. And you know, These are in the bylaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, and if we had such an organization with enough membership that could get some lobbying power, then we can use that to express our own uh, agendas and our own uh, uh, PR so that people would understand that, you know, here's a group that actually it might even state in their bylaws that it, they encourage the government to create good regulatory law that prevents people from uh, being unnecessarily uh, – having their privacy – illegally or unnecessarily invaded. And uh, those kind of things would would create the kind of favorable image and distance us from some of the things that we don't necessarily agree with. Because what my fear in the long run is that all of these public needs and commercial uses of of UAVs are are unfortunately going to start being fulfilled by military systems operated by government agencies. We see some of this, you know, yeah, when you see things like, you know, NASA flies a giant predator for wildfire work. Well, that's, that's nice, but it's, it's not cost-effective. And it's a government agency doing something that, you know, helps a little bit, but we need a lot of these smaller UAVs working side-by-side side with firefighters, and that can only happen when it's a commercial thing. And it, it, But then that's just that's a benign example. But then what if, you know, the police are the only ones that have UAVs? Or maybe... The Air Force is operating a UAV, but loaning, but allowing the data to be used by the local police departments. 
these are the kind of things that, are, that create the big brother fears that everyone justifiably is, is, is concerned about. And we need to actually distance ourselves and discourage that because that, in my mind, that's the worst of all worlds is in the end, the commercial market falls into the Boeings and the you know, Air Force and, the, and it basically it's all government run. Um, then we really don't know what's going to happen to our privacy. Right. And, and, you know, you, you covered a lot of real estate there and I wanted to, I wanted to back it up and I know Gene probably wants to say some stuff too, but that is exactly what we were trying to do with the remote control aerial photography association. Uh, you know, be a professional guild that goes out there and talks to people about this. And we've tried to be the, uh, you know, the, that commercial voice. It's very difficult to do. And I've, you know, I have conversations with people about it all the time, but it's this this community, and I'm sure you've probably seen this too, Steve, is uh, a lot of mavericks, a lot of passionate people, and some of the issues that you had talked about, like trying to carve out that niche. Man, I had that uh, discussion with so many people that were like, "Well, you're not really encompassing what I do." Well, it's like you know, I don't, I, I have a limited uh, resources in both time and money, and I have to, I can't let my uh, reach exceed my grasp or grasp exceed my reach. And uh, we tried to do that. I will say that, uh, you know, the, there's, there's been a lot of adversity with that type of group. Also from the FAA, we used to do uh, weekly calls. You remember that, Gene? I do remember that well. And uh, it was amazing how we were patronized. Not only were we patronized, but almost every idea that we had, uh, they send us off and do do some busy work. I mean, this that whole SAR contest, you know, I'm, I'm going to lay it out here for people that don't know, but that Outback Challenge was an RCAP idea. We were going to do that here first. We had it all set up. We were going to have a contest, and uh, I'm sure you will remember, Gene, because I remember you protesting on the call when the FAA said, not a good idea. Uh, we don't want you to do that, um, so why don't you drop it? And uh, That was the beginning of the end for me on that phone call. Yeah, and and we had already, you know, uh, Gene had come up with all the rules and to find the target, and the, the, it was a it was a blue tarp that was the shape of a person, and yada yada. Uh, it was all worked out. We we're all gung ho, had sponsors, everything else. Um, a very disappointing, uh, but uh, even that, and you know, it was funny even last week with the NIJ thing when they're talking about an online test. The RCAPA had already done that. We had several online tests, a video test. It allowed us to uh, secure commercial liability insurance, which people to this day still beat me up with. Well, you can't get insurance. It's like, no, the insurance is available. We made inroads with this, you know, five-star rated insurance company, yada, yada. Um, so we did a lot of work. We did a lot of lobbying work, and we still do a lot of lobbying work. I know that the RCAPA, most people go, oh, geez, what are you guys doing? I try and write about it. I can't uh, telegraph everything that I do, but I'm still uh, very active in the federal political circles with um, you know, uh, contacting the FAA. And my local uh, House member here has actually written a letter to the FAA acting administrator on the behalf of RCAPA to get small business a voice on the current SUAS ARC, which, you know, I don't know if you've been following that one, Steve, but uh, that one to me, um, where you don't have any small business representation on an ARC where, you know, in the charter it talks about resolving questions from the last ARC. I, I, I smell a big fat rat. Do you have any comments about that? Um, well, 
I, I, early on, I was approached by some of these art committees to serve on them. But once again, I, I, as a small business, I didn't have time to donate to this, and it, and it was interfacing with a government bureaucracy. So there would be a lot of time and, and effort spent. So naturally, the only people who can contribute, you know, bodies to that are going to be other big agencies. And so you're just by just by the fundamental nature of how it's set up, you're not going to get uh, people like me heavily involved in it. And so. Uh, that's one of these things where if we'd had this uh, mythical national organization in place early on, it could have pushed against or, or helped influence an ARC-type committee. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a chicken and the egg thing, and the, the regulations are going to come down probably sooner rather than later. Uh, I mean, sooner than, than, a, than, a, than, a, than a large, uh, well-attended uh, independent organization would occur. So... In the end, I just had this. I'm in the sit back and wait and see. It's something I can't affect, and uh, uh, as an individual, and uh, it's it's just it's frustrating. That's all I can say. I, I don't really know what else to do. Um, what I what I really would like is you know, on this you know mythical national organization that that, that votes for self-regulation of a small class of UAVs. I'd like that organization to try to grab as much real estate as it can. I, I respect and, and admire what R. Kappa has done, but I want something bigger. I want something that represents, for example, anybody who flies something under 100 pounds, kind of like what the model airplane guys have done. And, you know, to be honest, I was really hoping that the model airplane uh, AMA would have adopted and, and embraced this whole thing and actually run with it, because if if we could just turn back the clock and imagine the AMA not afraid of and bad-mouthing UAVs like they've done, then the AMA could have tapped into the perfect growth opportunity for the future of their organization, which is the educational activity, the introduction of all these young people who want to get into this field, the, the growth of the industry around it. The AMA would have been sitting on a pot of gold if they you know, could have jumped on this with a, a more liberal attitude towards it. And they have a background of many years of self-regulation of aircraft under a certain size limit. Um, for historical reasons, they went a different direction and, and actually tried to divorce themselves from UAVs, and that sort of came around to bite them in the end, I would say. But you know, if we could get the AMA and the AOPA to be more in line with uh, a group of uh, UAV operators in the under under 100-pound category, then we'd have the kind of lobbying power we need to, to make things happen. Otherwise, we have to create the organization from scratch. And right. uh, anyway, that's just a, a thought on a, on a on a possible plan of attack. That's all. Well, and and you know, this is what we need. Uh, you know, we we need thoughts. You're an engineer. You want to solve problems, and that's that's kind of a that's a good thing. I I will say, you know, I, I do want to say that too. You know, uh, that your company and you supported uh, RCAP on the small UAS arc, and it, w it was people like Steve's company that uh, made it possible for me to even travel there and be involved. Um, and then I wanted to just step on the AMA thing real quick. I will say, you know, their uh, let's say leadership was bifurcated, and there were some people that figured if we just got away from this unmanned aircraft thing, um, the problem would go away. But uh, I have to be honest, I was on the uh, let's say remote control um, subcommittee on the ARC, and you know, he basically had we had been working on all this stuff. I wish I could have been more involved with the ARC, but it cost a lot of money to travel and all the rest of that. But anyway, I had a real 
problem. And I had, believe it or not, I got the meeting shut down because I protested. When ATO um, got up, Artie Williams basically said, we're right in the regs for model model aviation. (laughs) Which (laughs) I'm like, well, what were we doing for the last six, seven months? You know, were we just spinning our wheels over there, wasting our time? You know, uh, I have to say, it was a little, uh, I, I was a little taken aback and a little frustrated with that, because uh, again, you know, I'd invested. I mean, I was on telecons four days a week, you know, hours on end. It was very hard to hold down a job and be a participant on that that arc, you know, and especially when I'm not working for a. Uh, you know, multi-million dollar company that was paying my salary, my travel, my per diem, and all the rest of that. I was usually hot wiring, staying in uh, what I like to call the midnight special room, which is a room that I always had in D.C. I was right next to the train tracks, you know, and that, and that train come by all night long. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, but those are the types of things that we were up against in the arc. And then, Gene, I want to let you jump in here. You got You got any views on that one? Well, we've tried to participate as much as we possibly could and and contribute as much as we possibly could, and I think there's still room for that. Uh, I haven't given up on it completely. Steve hit the nail on the head when he says we need to carve out a very small portion of it, and small is the operative word, that we need to look at small unmanned aircraft. And and that's something that, that uh, our CAPA and, and uh, the folks, the board members there, tried to focus on as well. I still think that's a viable way to approach this. Uh, and I think if we, we show them what a small UA is capable of in the positive sense in terms of uh, fire suppression, mitigation, risk mitigation, search and rescue, and that sort of thing, even even the ACLU agrees that there are times when those tools are best used. And we need to leverage that kind of information to keep keep our momentum going. Right. Well, the only other issue that I have with that is, um, you know, let's say this airspace integration thing is 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 definitely uh, very large and varied. And I, I'm going to have to tell you that from my perspective and interfacing with the, let's say, different iterations of the UAPO office, uh, the airspace integration thing has not been a two-way street. It's all been one way. Um, you know, we remember the RCAPA guidelines that, uh, you know, Mel and Ira basically had, were, were really the heavy lifters on that one and how you could implement uh, this program today, a, a group, a community-based organization that um, was going to self-regulate, had their own um, guidelines that you would uh, subscribe to and whatever else. And, you know, the FA was telling us, yeah, this looks great. Man, that sounds great. Let's see the online test. Man, that is a great idea. Give them this information. Oh, you know what you need to do? You need to go work with the RTCA. And that was another situation like the ARC. It cost, you know, uh, $2,000 or $3,000 to go to these meetings. And, you know, you would go to this meeting and the next thing you know, oh, uh, the dude from ALPA is the chairperson for the small UAS, or, or small UAS part of this. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay, he's qualified. That's like me getting on a, an ARC for uh, Part 121 aircraft, and I'm going to, well, my experience is I've eaten peanuts and coach, you know. And, uh, you know, you know, everybody gets a little chuckle out of that one, but, you know, it's true. It's like, this guy, he's got no experience. 
they don't have anyone. I, I mean, it's just, it's maddening. And, you know, I will say, uh, you know Tad McGear, uh, right, Steve? Yep. I was, uh, worked with him at Aurora, and we, he was at school a few years ahead of me. Well, t- you know, Tad, uh, engineer too, and, you know, Tad's up there giving physics lessons to the people. I, I thought it was great myself. I found it very interesting, uh, you know, to the rest of the ARC. And, you know, we did not have engineers on the ARC. The only other, the only real engineer, other engineer on there was Fred Marks from AMA Direct, you know. And these guys are talking about fault trees and, you know, where to start with the reliability and safety and the numbers and everything else. And the rest of the crowd was just glazed over, man. Didn't have any idea what they were talking about. And then, you know, yeah, along those lines, um, you know, one, one of, if, if we could get those organizations to listen to some technical discussion on the whole matter. You know, the sticking point for us is the sense and avoid or see and avoid issue. And I think the FAA is, is really not thought about this in, the, in a way that, that makes a lot of sense for the whole range of UAVs that might operate. When you look at the smaller aircraft, which are most impacted by not having a, a low-cost, lightweight sense and avoid system, and you look at, you know, let's just imagine that we had such a system right now. Well, you're flying along in the airspace, and, and then in theory, the small UAV always senses and avoids the manned aircraft. But I would bet that if you did a test, you'd find out that the manned aircraft almost never can see the small UAV and, and never actually has any uh, skin in the game and sense and avoid because he can't see the threat. It's too small. Mm-hmm. And by the time, and it, given the speed differences, by the time he's on it, he can't do anything anyway. And if you then you turn back the clock to right now, and you can say, look, the f- entire burden of sense and avoid falls to the UAV, not to the manned aircraft operator. It would be smarter if we did something that made it an even playing field. And I would like to you know, suggest things like, what, what if I flew with something that made my aircraft extremely visible, whether it's a, a, a low-cost uh, LED strobe uh, system or... Uh, you know, low cost meaning like $500, but it just makes the thing look really bright and everyone can see it. Or I tow a 100-foot Mylar streamer behind my aircraft. If I if it went the other way, w- would there be some way that the FAA might say, okay, for the kind of work you're doing down at low altitude with these smaller aircraft, you're visible enough that maybe we'll just let you fly without any other sense and avoid system, and we'll put the burden on the guy in the airplane to miss you, uh, like they do with balloons. Now, I know that mm-hmm. seems a bit egregiously uh, arrogant to think that, that that an unmanned system would have some kind of a right-of-way over manned. But from a pure safety standpoint, the, the biggest problem right now is that small airplanes are just not visible. And we're waiting for this silver bullet to be developed, this magical electronic system that's going to allow us to avoid them. Um, but it's, 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 it's very lopsided in its burden. It, it would all be simpler if everybody would agree to carry an ADSB system, but we know AOPA is lobbying against that for, you know, people don't we want to spend why. a thousand bucks to save their lives. So it's it's complicated, but we, we just have no voice in this, and we're and all the burden is falling on us because we have no voice. That's, that's the upshot of all the tech. The lack of technical discussion has resulted in all of the burden falling on the UAV operator, and that's why that's the other sticking point in this. Uh, and I agree with that. And you know what? Uh, I just had a conversation with people at MITRE about ADSB, and we're almost out of time. Where we've hit the two-minute warning here, but the uh, I am a proponent of the ADSB thing. The infrastructure will be coming online here in 2013. 
And also, it will be available on commercial platforms like the iPad and whatever else. And I'm going to suggest that ADSB be uh, the mandate's 2020. The mandate for getting a, uh, UAS into the NAS is 2015. And I all and I think what we should close that gap. And I also believe that this ADSB might be a tool for the public. Uh, to they could go out and buy this system and know what's flying around their house or place or business, and it would empower the public to, let's say, safeguard their own privacy. And if I wanted to go out in the yard and you know sunbathe naked or whatever, I'd be able to check this uh, device out and see if anyone's flying around my house. It's all we can do about that one right now because we are going to run out of time. Um, Again, uh, you know, these conversations, you know, sometimes I wonder, wow, is 25 or 45 minutes going to be too long? And uh, we always seem to run long on these deals and run out of time. Uh, Steve, I want to say thanks again for for coming on. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on the 12th. And, uh, again, the conversation was very informative. Thanks for having me. It was great. Hey, no problem. Gene? You know, we've had a we had to tolerate uh, you again. No, <laughs> I'm teasing. Uh, I'll try to keep it a little quieter next time. Okay. I'm sorry. I know I totally uh, hogged the whole conversation, and uh, I'm sorry about that. And uh, we'll have to <laughs> I'll have to be a better listener. I'm working on that. Anyway, to everyone out there in uh, Radio Land, see you next week. <laughs>